year and a half ago now, opened up the doomsday files and brought you about seven lessons on end time prophecy and how uh, the world confirmed the word. Showed you how people in this world, the governments of this world, the religious people in the world and so forth, all believed that the day was nigh at hand when God would bring an end to life on planet Earth as we know it. Most of the problems you have when you start talking about doomsday is the fact that people talking about them do not know the Bible. All this world knows is judgment is deserved and it will soon fall. They know nothing about a rapture. They know nothing about a second coming. But they sure know about that passage in Peter that the heavens shall melt with a fervent heat, the elements shall be dissolved, and all these things that God has created will be burned up and brought to nothing. The world's not worried about Jesus coming again. They're worried about doomsday, the destruction of the earth. That fear is misplaced. They ought to fear God. Amen. They ought to fear the Lord. But uh, you've had a rash here in the last five years, and it'll get worse as we get closer and closer to this year 2000 on our calendar. You've had a rash of date setters. You all remember the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. And then it was reprinted, 89 Reasons Why He'll Come in 89. The 89th reason was, because I was wrong, He didn't come in 88. And I guess it's out now, 93 Reasons Why He Might, Maybe, I Hope, Come in 93. But uh, you've always get yourself in trouble, you start setting those dates. The most recent one was this group in, in Korea that uh, said the Lord was coming in October of uh, 1992, and they caused the big stir. Read you the letters about that from over in the Philippines. Uh, Brother Chick has begun recently reprinting a real good track called The Last Generation. I've got an original copy of that tract uh, dating the Lord's return from the regathering of Israel in 1948, saying it had to be before 1988 because a generation was 40 years and this generation won't pass. You can't, you can't start doing that. You can't be setting... Uh, dates on a speculative nature or basis. I want to start this evening in uh, Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. I hope the Lord comes tonight. I believe He can come tonight. I'm looking for Him to come tonight. But I'm not going to state that He is coming tonight because I don't know that. What we want to look at tonight, I'm going to give you, I, just, I think you'll enjoy this. These are accounts of several date setters and the phenomena that surrounded those uh, uh, dates that were set. I think you'll enjoy this. You've uh, had it real easy today. Just had a lesson this morning on how to study the Bible. Uh, look tonight back at some things in history. Just kind of let you uh, take it easy. Get your spiritual batteries recharged here. Bible says in Matthew 24... Verse 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. How many men know the day of the Lord's return? Not a one. How many men know the hour of the Lord's return? Not a one. How many angels know the time of the Lord's return? Not a one. Who knows when Jesus is coming back? The Father. He's not revealed that to anyone. Anyone that says they know is they're just not right by the Word of God. Uh, be interesting before we get through tonight. A lot of people talking nowadays about what's going on out in Waco. 
That fellow's part of a church, part of a denomination that has had a long history of doing just what that man is doing. We'll see some of those tonight. First of these uh, took place in the year 999. The year 999. The early Christians devoutly believed in the second coming of Christ and a last judgment. For the first two centuries, they expected these events almost daily, and they lived with this view in mind. You read those New Testament scriptures, and those Christians, those believers, they were looking for the Lord to come every single day, and, and they lived that way. They didn't accumulate possessions. Uh, husbands and wives ceased living together. Many men uh, castrated themselves so they wouldn't be tempted to sin in the brief time remaining to them. That was going on all through the first century of the New Testament church. They were so sure that Jesus was coming again, they didn't want anything to uh, bind them to this earth and to this life. Gradually, their expectancy uh, waned. But boy, when you got getting close to that uh, year 1000, uh, the excitement started to stir again. The interest began to arise. They just figured there had to maybe be some sort of uh, significance to that, uh, that millennial date, that thousand-year date. And all over Europe, priests and commoners alike became confident that the Savior uh, would preside over the last judgment before the year 1000 arrived. Midnight, December 31, 999, was chosen and proclaimed as the exact time of Christ's second coming. Everybody believed it. Letters were signed and conversations were concluded with, they would sign their name instead of sincerely or yours truly. Letters were signed for about three years with the approaching end of the world, Brother James. They just knew it was coming. They just knew it had to take place. Thousands of pilgrims began the long walk to Jerusalem believing the last judgment would occur there. All possessions were sold. Buildings and churches fell into ruins. The pilgrims' eyes were raised to heaven. Even those who did not go to Jerusalem sold or gave away all their possessions and lived for weeks on hillsides where they could be more easily snatched up when the Lord came. When the year 1000 dawned, nothing happened. The date was moved ahead 1,000 years. The pilgrims resumed life, only this time without houses, jobs, goods, or churches. Say, so what happened? They were looking for the Lord to come. No. They were looking for the Lord to come on a particular date. We're not looking to the calendar. We're looking to the sky. Amen. The Bible says we're expecting the Lord from heaven anytime. Anytime. Not a set time. In the year 1186, a Persian poet, an astrologer named Anwari. That's, uh, you remember Mr. Sadat over there in Egypt? Uh, Anwar Sadat. Anwari selected September... 16, 1186. You'll see before we get through tonight, these dates always end up centering around September. Uh, I, I tend to agree with them. I'm just not going to give you the year. <laughs> okay? September 16, 1186 is the exact date the world would come to an end. Because on this date, five major planets were due to conjoin in the sign of Libra. Other astrologers agreed and letters were sent to kings, knights, bishops, and important people. Thousands of persons sold everything and headed for the hillsides of Jerusalem. The date passed and nothing happened. Well, maybe, maybe again something did happen. Because on this night, September 16, 1186, Genghis Khan was born. 
And before his life was over, many believed that was almost as bad as Doomsday. <laughs> if you know anything about that fellow, what a, what a terror he was. Now, you know something, folks? You know your Bibles pretty well. I hope you do. If I believed that the judgment, the Doomsday judgment was going to fall tonight, let me tell you something. The last place I'd book a flight for would be Jerusalem. The last place I want to be is where Jesus is going to concentrate the center of his wrath and fury when he gets back. Keep, I look at a map and find the point farthest from Jerusalem. I, I don't want to be there. You say, well, wouldn't you like to be there and see the Lord ride in? I'll be behind him. I'll watch him come in. I'll have a good view. Uh, have a good look at that thing. All right, come to Genesis chapter 9 in your Bible. Genesis chapter 9. Move on up to the year 1524. 1524, that was a very good year. Genesis chapter 9. During the, the uh, Dark Ages and moving on up into the Middle Ages before the Reformation, uh, you probably wouldn't believe this, but nearly everyone patterned their lives after the prognostications of astrologers reading the stars and gazing into horoscopes. Aren't you glad we've had an Enlightenment and a Reformation since then? Aren't you glad that people are educated now and advanced to the point where, where they get up every morning and check their horoscope in the newspaper? We've sure come a long way, haven't we, with all our advancement and education. But during this day, uh, an astrologer by the name of Johann Stoffler, is a member of the faculty at the University of Tübingen in Germany, he was most respected. Stoffler in his long black astrologer's robe with the signs of the zodiac embroidered on, them, on the hem in gold thread was an awesome figure. He was the official advisor to princes and bishops in Europe. He was a man who should have known what he was talking about. So in 1499, when he published a book uh, called Ephemerides, in which he stated that on February 20th, 1524, there would be a great conjunction of 20 planets in the watery sign of Pisces, and this could only mean the end of the world by a flood. Hmm. Genesis 9, verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Just think, if you'd have just known one verse of Scripture, you wouldn't have been misled. Well, at first this news was received calmly. Doomsday was 25 years away, so who cared? But as 1524 grew closer... Nervousness increased all over Europe. Almanacs poured from the presses, embellishing Stoffler's old prediction. Other astrologers and clergymen reiterated the dire expectation. And as the year 1524 dawned, Europe was on the verge of collective hysteria. Up and down the rivers, particularly the Rhine, thousands of men built arks in which they hoped to survive the deluge as Noah had done. Among theologians, the shotgun in the bomb shelter controversy raged, only in a slightly different form. The, the leading theological debate for years became, did the Christian have a right to limit his ark to his family? Some of y'all lived through the Cold War, and you remember, should you build a bomb shelter big enough for all the neighbors or just for you and your family? Should you stockpile enough food for your friends or just for yourself? Now, how many of you remember that or not? Uh, I don't. <laughs> I was busy watching Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> but... <laughs> And he didn't say anything about it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's right. He, he knew what was going on. 
Uh, was a man justified in using force to keep his neighbors from boarding his craft if they hadn't built one? On February 20th, the question became more than academic. Thousands who had not built vessels and had spent their last hours in chambering and wantonness rushed, into the, rushed to the riverfronts to board the arcs of those who had heeded Stouffer's warning. Count von Egelum had constructed a magnificent three-story arc on the Rhine for his family, and a sudden rain with accompanying thunder and lightning set off a panic among the throngs on the docks, and a crowd surged toward the Count's arc. He drew his sword, ran through one ruffian, but the mob, knocked him, the mob knocked him down, stomped him to death, and so many piled on the deck of his ark that it capsized. So much for that, Noah. <laughs> for several days, it continued to rain hard. The hysteria mounted. Hailstones as large as grapes fell. The rivers rose. Arks and rafts left their moorings to escape the panic of the arkless on the shore. A monk, observing the scene along the banks of the Rhine, wrote, The people were distracted by fear, knowing not which way to turn. In the uncertainty of their brute minds, they fell into all forms of carnal beastliness and sin. Eventually, however, the rains ended, the rivers fell, and an astrologer named George Transonetter proved that Stoffler had been way off in his calculations. Generally, people came back to shore, and most of them said they had merely been fishing and never really believed it anyway. <laughs> Scores, however, had been killed or murdered. Now, that's an amazing story for several reasons. You say, oh, those gullible people believe something like that. Yeah, but you know something? The last few years, you've had all kind of people setting dates for the Lord's return. You know what impact it had on your society? None. At least back in these days, people feared a doomsday and believed judgment was coming. Today, you can't rouse more than a handful. Genesis 9:15. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. I'm not worried about a flood of water. You better be worried about the next one going to be fire. Next one, this, this thing is going to burn. Amen. All right, 1665. This was the year of the plague in London. With uh, friends and neighbors dropping like flies, you'll love this. It was not difficult to believe that the decimating pestilence heralded the end of the world. It was at this time that a Quaker preacher named Solomon Eccles gave voice to the fear. Eccles was over six feet tall, broad-shouldered, with black hair and beard. He looked every inch the biblical prophet. And he made a startling appearance one day in the large church. He walked in naked except for a goatskin loincloth, carrying on his head an iron pan containing live coals and brimstone. He burst into St. Mary's Church during Sunday morning service, walked down the center aisle and shouted, Down on your knees, repent, for the end of the world is at hand, and the fire of the Lord will smite you in your wickedness. Don't think that didn't get people's attention. You're not getting much response to your preaching? Try that. <laughs> Wow. Now, folks, uh, this wasn't a day of TV and movies and, and mass entertainment. Uh, let me tell you something. A, a scene like that would stir the county. Not only that, he shouted, follow me. I'll show you what awaits. The hysterical worshipers at this point were ready to do anything. He led them out of the church through the moor gate and into the fields. He took them out to an enormous pit into which the bodies of plague victims had been flung. 
In this setting, he preached his message, Awake, sinners, awake. The grave yawns before you. Repent. You're looking at your fate. That's a good illustration. You know that? Here's this mass open grave of all these victims of the plague, and this fellow standing here in his loincloth with a plate of burning coals of fire on his head saying, You see that? You better repent. <laughs> That'd work. Now, if he'd have just stopped right there, he'd have done all right. Hundreds fell to their knees, sobbing. In the ensuing weeks, the naked Ecclesiastes uh, roamed the stricken city, preached the world's end by fire. In the mounting hysteria, signs of approaching doom began to be seen by many. There were rumors of coffins flying through the air, hearses leaving funeral possessions and taking off into the sky. Satan's hoof prints were plainly visible in the soft earth around the church nearly every morning. Finally, the harassed authorities threw Eccles in jail, and the hysteria finally died down. Eccles calmed down too while he was in jail and later went with George Fox to Barbados and preached the gospel uh, in a world that continued without end, but never so dramatically as he had in 1665. Now, you know something, folks? He didn't actually set a date, but I'll tell you what, I bet he got a lot of folks saved. <laughs> I bet he brought a lot of people to repentance. Amen. 1736, William Whitson was Sir Isaac Newton's friend. You've heard of him. And uh, he was a professor of astronomical geography at Cambridge University. He was considered one of England's most distinguished scientists until October 13, 1736. On that evening, before a group of scholars in London, he produced a scale model of the temple and tabernacle in Jerusalem. He stated, friends, we may forget now the... Uh, Speculations of science, because the period of the end of all things is at hand. Within three days, the world shall be no more. On Thursday morning at 5 o'clock, the comet I have warned you about will appear. The Messiah will be restored to earth and go up to Jerusalem. And on Friday, the world will end in fire, earthquake, and slaughter. Professor uh, Whitson's reputation gave weight to his prediction, which he based upon the temple and tabernacle measurements and presented eloquently from the scripture. And so did the appearance in the heavens. At 5.05 the following morning, unannounced and unlooked for by all but a few, in came Halley's Comet with its curving, fiery tail. The bottom fell out of the stock market. Banks and businesses were closed. Nobody came to work. Tower Hill was crowded with praying, sobbing people. The taverns and brothels were jammed. Vickers were besieged by couples wishing to be married before the end and persons begging for baptism. The Archbishop of Canterbury was urged to open Westminster Abbey for a great final prayer meeting. Even the Bank of England was caught up in the hysteria, insisting that a couple of a, a company of firemen, complete with engines, be stationed on the premises so that if the fire of God's wrath did break out, it wouldn't burn his bank. <laughs> Here's a bunch of firemen with fire hoses just in case God sets the world on fire. My bank will be left. <laughs> when the last day had come and gone, a relieved people, feeling slightly foolish, went back to their jobs. Professor Whitson announced certain miscalculations, set another tentative date, but he was fired from his professorship, spent the rest of his life making a living re lecturing about the day the earth almost came to the end. <laughs> if, if they prove you a fool, you can always go on the lecture circuit. <laughs> 1761, 
On a late winter day, the city of London experienced its first earthquake in history. Chimneys tumbled, houses swayed, fish leapt from the water, dogs howled. Exactly four weeks later came a second stronger quake. Several buildings crumbled. In a seedy London tavern, a group of soldiers of the King's lifeguards were drinking. They started talking about the recent earthquakes and somebody wondered half-jokingly if there'd be another earthquake at the end of the present four-week period. At this time, a drunken soldier, William Bell, began figuring out loud. 28 days, that makes the 5th of April. His voice rose with excitement. April 5th, on April 5th, we'll all be undone. This is the end of the world. The third earthquake will end the world. Before anyone could stop him, the drunken soldier lurched into the street, bawling to the world that it would come to an end on April 5th and the third earthquake. Well, the two unprecedented earthquakes already had made London very nervous. Bell drew a crowd, and soon the news uh, spread, as rumors do, and uh, soon every part of the city believed the world would end on April 5th. Bell, exalted by his newfound importance as a prophet, preached to throngs all over London like a snowball the terror grew. By April 1st, London was virtually at a standstill. Banks and stores were closed. Panicky crowds left the city for the open fields. The rich bought space on ships, crowding every vessel in the Thames, apparently thinking there might be safety from a final earthquake on water. There were uh, scores of suicides, sales of homes and possessions, runs on banks, crowds awaiting marriage or baptism, and drunken carousing. You say, what happened on April 5th? Not much, but on April 6th, Bell was sent to the London Madhouse and, and locked in the insane asylum. <laughs> they should have locked up everybody else <laughs> with him. Now, uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. But you know, we're much more enlightened today. We've got uh, weather channels and advanced scientific forecasts, and so we're not worried about the end of the world. Because we know if the end of the world was coming, our meteorologists and our uh, friends at the Weather Center and our scientists, they'd let us know well ahead of time. Well, if they did, what would you do? So I'd repent and get right with God. Really? The Bible, God himself has told this world the end is coming and they're not repenting and getting right with God. You know what the Bible says in Romans chapter number 1? Professing themselves wise, they became fools and the world by wisdom knew not God. Back in the days when folks were simple, you could still stir them up and get them excited about the Lord coming back, about the end of the world. You could still get them concerned about doomsday. You can't shake them up anymore. They're too smart. They got it all figured out. Yes, sir. That's right. No. How many got on the ark with Noah? Amen. Deuteronomy 18, verse 22. Let's start at verse 21. If thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken... When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. It's just that simple. If a man says, God told me something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then don't be afraid of him. Don't pay any attention to him. The Lord hadn't spoken by that man. In 1806... One of the few people besides tavern keepers to make any money out of the end of the world scares was a demure, attractive English con woman 
named Mary Bateman. She made doomsday a business. During the autumn of 1806, a rumor spread through the uh, bank, a slum section of the city of Leeds, that some divinely inspired chickens were laying eggs predicting the second coming. They say, what do you think about these Mary statues weeping and these uh, visions of Jesus in the trees? Uh, they, they got nothing on an egg, <laughs> an egg-laying chicken predicting the end of the world. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, crowds of uh, curious converged on the tavern called Black Dog, which surrounded the shacks where this chicken was. When the yard was full of people, Mary Bateman, dressed primly in black Quaker garb, stepped from one of the shacks, followed by a big, rough-looking man carrying a small coop, which held an angrily clucking brown hen. The coop was painted red and gold with a white cross on the top. It was lifted onto a cart so that all could see, and Mary began to speak. She had dreamed of the end of the world, she said. In this dream, God had appointed her his prophetess to save as many as possible from the wrath to come. This was to be effected through her hen, who would lay 14 eggs bearing the inscription, Christ is coming. Four had already been laid. When the 14th had been laid, the world would end in fiery convulsion. At this point, the hen squawked and laid an egg. Tenderly, Mary held it up. Sure enough, on the egg was the clear inscription, Christ is coming. Pandemonium broke loose. People tried to kiss the blessed egg. They tugged at the hem of Mary's dress. Wait, she commanded. There was hope for some, but before they could hear it, each must pay a penny to help defray expenses. Everybody paid. The woman then explained that in her dream, God revealed to her that as many as could afford a shilling or more for the price of uh, for a piece of paper bearing their name sealed with the inscription J.C. would be taken into the kingdom of God immediately after the last egg was laid. Almost everyone paid. Mary announced another egg laying and sealing for the next day. As each new egg was laid, the hysteria spread from Leeds to other cities. Thousands thronged the area around Black Dog to get sealed before it was too late. Just before the last egg was due, two Leeds policemen with the wonderful names of Pickles and Wharfdale Remember that 20 years before, in nearby Topcliffe, there had been a hen who laid eggs with fortunes neatly inscribed on them. They investigated. Then, with several constables, they hurried to the yard of the black dog, where a vast throng awaited the final egg. Bursting into a shack, they caught Mary in the act of inserting an egg with the words, Christ is coming, into the hen's egg duct. Mary Bateman went to prison. When she was released, she continued her career as a prophetess and had a large following. Fin finally, she was sentenced to be hung. At the ha her hanging, 20,000 of her followers watched the heavens for signs of divine intervention, but there were none. She was not hung as a false prophetess. She was hung for performing abortions. We've come a long way, baby. We've come a long way. Amen. 1814. Johanna Southcott, born in Devon, 1750, apparently possessed some genuine psychic ability. For years, she was a simple prophetess and acquired a large following. However, in the middle of life, she decided, after studying the book of Revelation, that she was the bride of the Lamb. Oh, come, come, come. 
I'm the bride of the Lamb. <laughs> Everybody's saved and born again in this age. She also associated with a fiery believer in an imminent second coming named Richard Brothers. Brothers had a weird mixture of Catholicism and Swedenborgianism, and he had a considerable following which merged with uh, Southcott's. When Brothers was finally penned up in Bedlam Penitentiary, uh, the Nuthouse Wing, uh, Joanna became sole leader of the combined groups. She set up headquarters in London, and in 18 months her following had grown to 8,000. When she instituted a campaign to destroy Satan, uh, 14,000 signed up to follow her. In her third book of wonders, Joanna informed the world that Shiloh, Christ, was on his way, that she had been chosen to be the instrument of his second coming, that she was pregnant, although she was 64 years old, and that after Shiloh had been born, the present world would come to an end. Twenty-one doctors examined Joanna, and 17 of them said she was pregnant. The medical profession, as well as her followers, avidly followed the course of her pregnancy, an ornate cradle costing $1,000 was constructed to receive the Messiah. As the time for her delivery approached, thousands of her disciples filled the space in front of her house in Manchester, shouting, Rule King Shiloh, King Shiloh rules alone. The glory crown comes to rule on David's throne. The crowds maintained their vigil day after day and night after night. Three people died of starvation because they wouldn't go home to eat for fear they'd miss the birth. Alas, nothing happened. King Shiloh was not born. Joanna was not pregnant. When doctors told her it was a false pregnancy, she turned her face to the wall and died on the spot. Her hysterical followers forced the doctors to perform a cesarean operation on her body and release the Messiah, but there was no Messiah to release. Her legend persisted for a long time. She had predicted that seven angelic messengers would carry on her work, the seventh and last of these messengers and self-proclaimed Shiloh's was the most notorious King Ben Persil, who in 1926 in Benton Harbor, Michigan, founded the House of David. Of which this fella in Waco is a direct descendant. How about that? Branch Davidian? Branch of the house of David. You say, what happened to King Ben? Well, he died in 1926, awaiting charges, uh, trial on 22 charges of sexual assault on girl members of the colony. Hadn't changed their tactics much, have they? If it starts wrong, it ends wrong. Well, William Miller... Uh, founded a group called the Millerites. Say they still around today? Well, that fell out in Waco as a break off of them. The Millerites became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They've always been date setters. They were founded by a date setter. William Miller was a farmer who lived near Lowhampton, New York. He had been something of the hero in the War of 1812, being mustered out of captain in 1815. He was a devout man. And he preached in a small Baptist chapel near his farm. He was interested in Bible study, jotted down dates, figures, and measurements, made elaborate charts. One Sunday morning in 1832, he announced his calculations were accomplished and the world would end in 1843. Miller acquired a large following. 
Boston Baptist minister, Reverend Joshua Himes, became interested in Miller's theories and appointed himself Miller's manager. Under the guidance of uh, Reverend Himes, the Millerite gospel spread rapidly through New England and over into New York and Pennsylvania. Between 1834 and 1839, Miller gave no less than 800 lectures and sermons, all on the theme that Christ would return and the world would end in 1843. Mesmerized by Miller's oratory and convinced by his charts, several hundred thousand Americans became Millerites. With Himes handling the business details, Miller's sermons, lectures, and charts were published and widely disseminated. A huge auditorium was built on Howard Street in Boston where the faithful could sing and pray while they saw the old world out. At first, Miller had no exact date for the final cataclysm, but as 1843 approached, he came up with March 20th as the most likely day of doom. As 1843 dawned, throngs of Millerites left their homes and jobs, donned white shrouds, prepared to devote their last days to prayer and singing. Cattle were slaughtered for love feasts. People began greeting one another with a biblical kiss. In New York State, four children starved to death, deserted by Millerite parents who said it wouldn't matter, the Lord was coming. Suicide rates rose. The lunacy rate in New England and New York trebled. So did the birth rate. One Episcopal minister had studied the birth records in his parish and announced that more conceptions had taken place the week before March 20th than in any week in the church's history. On March 19th, hysteria reached its height. In Boston, hundreds in their shrouds prayed in the auditorium. While outside in the streets and fields, people tore off their clothes, rolled in the streets and fields. Uh, they threw, went into fits. They drank themselves into a stupor. In Westford, Massachusetts, a crowd of 500 gathered in a hall to await the sound of the last trumpet. And suddenly they heard it loud and clear. Sobbing and shouting, people ran out into the street, only to learn that the millennial blast had been authored by the town drunk Crazy Amos on an old post horn. <laughs> Thousands in their shrouds waited all day on March 20th to be snatched up. Nothing happened. Miller announced a slight miscalculation, but refused to set another date. But the hysteria reached another climax on December 31, when New Year's Day 1844 dawned clear and bright. Miller had an explanation. He'd been mistaken in following the Christian calendar. He should have used the Jewish calendar. That was one of Weisenhut's outs, wasn't it? Wasn't that what he used? Uh, according to, the, that, to that, 1843 still had three months to go. However, his following melted rapidly away, and he died shortly thereafter. And onto the, onto the stage stepped Mary Ellen White, who said God showed her in a vision that Jesus wasn't coming back to earth in 1843, but that was the date he finally fought his way into the sanctuary in heaven to present the blood sacrifice. How many of you know that Seventh-day Adventists don't believe the blood atonement was offered to God until 1844? Any of you know that? They believe it took Jesus Christ 1844 years to fight his way through the principalities and powers and get to the throne room of heaven to present the sacrifice he made on Calvary. Say, so where'd that come from? A perversion of a pervert's false teachings. You thought they just met on Saturday instead of Sunday. Not only that, but they believe that Lucifer is the sin bearer of the world. You have redemption through Lucifer bearing your sins away. Yeah. Isn't that something? Mark 13, verse 21. If any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, 
or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Don't believe them. Yeah, brother? Yes. Yeah. Seventh-day Adventists believe if you go to church on Sunday, you've taken the mark of the beast. Yes, sun worshipers, because the you know it's the sun god. I asked one of them one time uh, uh, where Saturday got its name. He said, well, I don't worship on Sunday. I said, no. I said, you ever heard of Saturn? The Roman false pagan god? You know. So what about Friday? Well, you know, fresh fry. You can't eat meat on Friday, so they get... <clears throat> anyway, eight, 1847, a converted Jew in Palestine named Joseph Wolf predicted the second coming in the year 1847 with Christ to appear on the Mount of Olives preparatory to riding into Jerusalem for the last judgment. Well, that's the closest anybody's been yet. I'm not saying far as the date, but at least he's got the, the actions right. Return to the Mount of Olives and riding into Jerusalem. This prophecy was taken seriously by a number of people who should have known better. In England, by Lady Hester Stanhope, niece of William Pitt, she moved to the Holy Land and rented two splendid white horses, intending to accompany Christ on his ride into Jerusalem. <laughs> Folks, if you don't have one the Lord has prepared for you up in heaven, uh, you're not going to catch a ride once you get down here, I guarantee you. I can just see you mounting a horse at uh, ten times the speed of light. Try that one. <laughs> Uh, in the United States, a feminist by the name of Harriet Livermore preached the second coming at a special session of the House of Representatives in Washington. When 1847 passed without in incident, Wolfe went out of the second coming business. Lady Hester Stanhope returned quietly to England, and Miss Livermore switched her attention to preaching woman's suffrage in America. 1919. Got a couple more of these here. 1919. Professor Albert Porte came to the United States from Italy in 1875. The title was self-bestowed, but he was an expert seismographer and a student of meteorology and world weather. He lived in San Francisco where he predicted the weather for a small Italian language newspaper. He gained worldwide notoriety by 1917, in 1917 by accurately predicting the Guatemalan earthquake that December. So when he announced that the world would end December 17, 1919 because of a conjunction of six planets opposite Uranus, which would set up a magnetic current that would pierce the sun like a mighty spear, many paid attention. The prediction went around the world and alarm was widespread. Thousands called the U.S. Weather Bureau and the Naval Observatory to verify the awful news. Finally, the Nautical Almanac Office issued a statement admitting the planetary conjunction but denying that there was cause for concern. On the 16th, thousands of Negroes in South Carolina left work and began a 24-hour prayer vigil. Many whites joined them. In Oklahoma, miners refused to go underground. There were suicides and minor panics all over the world. When December 17th passed without incident, Professor Porte shrugged and went back to writing weather reports. There used to be this old Indian chief out west, and every morning all the people would gather around, he'd stand up and fold his arms, and he'd say, hot sun today, wind from south. And sure enough. And so every day it got to be a ritual. He'd stand up there and give the weather report, and, and it was right on the money every time. And 
They all gathered around one morning. The old chief went out there and he said, no weather today. And they, they asked him, said, well, come on, what's the prediction? He said, no weather today. One fellow said, why not, chief? You lost your power? Ugh, my radio broke. <laughs> so, that's, that's about the way those things go. Old uh, Dick Galbraith told me he used to be a cameraman up at Channel 2. And he said they had the studio was here, and they had uh, the uh, the studio set was here, and then the, the desk were over here, and the windows right there, just a little tiny thing. And he said that he was running the camera one day, and the fellow was on giving the news report and talking about clear, sunny skies. And he Dick said I was behind the camera doing like this and just pointing frantically, and the fellow's trying to go on with his news report without getting distracted. And he said we got done and switched to a commercial. The guy started cussing me out, and he said, "Look." And it was pouring down rain just as hard as it had ever rained. <laughs> Six feet away from where this fellow's uh, forecasting clear, sunny skies. Now, you know something? If a preacher was wrong, as many times as those weathermen were wrong, you'd quit listening to him. At least some people would. Some people sit under preachers like that all the time. It's been going on. It's no new thing. 1925. You notice something significant about that 1917 date? The only folks left getting concerned about the Lord coming back were primarily black people. White folks were educated by that time. They knew better. They weren't worried about the Lord coming back. Isn't that something? 1925, uh, Margaret Rowan, young California girl, was converted at a Seventh-day Adventist revival and at 17 became a prophetess. Late in 1924, she announced the Archangel Gabriel had come to her in a dream and told her the world would end Friday, February 13, 1925. The Messiah would appear as a cloud in the east, no bigger than a man's hand, and would approach the earth for seven days in order to give sinners a chance to repent. The chosen of the Lord, limited to 144,000, would ride the clouds to California for a rendezvous with the Redeemer, and then would be wafted to heaven while the rest of the world was incinerated. The seven days of doom sign appeared all over the country. In Oakland, Mr. and Mrs. Martin sold their home and spent every penny having seven days to doom tracks printed. In San Diego, 30 disciples disposed of all their possessions, put on white gowns, went to a hilltop. In Shiksini, Pennsylvania, a woman raved at her terror-stricken family about the coming cataclysm, then rushed out in the woodshed and hanged herself. In Cleveland, six respectable girls took part in an orgy all day. Six committed suicide later that night by drowning. In Patagoke, New York, a housekeeper named Robert Reet inserted ads in a local in New York City newspaper announcing the approaching doom and inviting all to join him for the event. Hundreds did, including a swarm of reporters. When nothing happened at midnight, February 13, Reet decided that the doom was due Pacific time and not Eastern Standard time. That's exactly what they told him in Korea. Remember that article I read you from over there in the Philippines? Well, it must be, it must be a different time zone. As, a three, as 3 a.m. approached, he and his followers rushed into the street shouting, Gabriel, Gabriel, here we are! The blinding light was not the Lord's return, but the flash bulbs of laughing photographers. Jesus didn't show up. In 1945, Reverend Charles G. Long, pastor of a California sect called Remnant Church of God, had a strange dream one night in 1938. In it, a blackboard materialized at the foot of his bed, and a glowing hand traced out a message. Daniel 12, 
1945. Diligent study of the 12th chapter of Daniel revealed to uh, Mr. Long that the second coming and last judgment were due at 5.33 p.m. on September 21st. There it is again, 1945. Now, I've read Daniel 12, and I'm going to read it again. Where'd you find 5.33 p.m. in Daniel chapter 12? <laughs> Must be a version I don't have. On that date, the world would be vaporized and all human beings except the saving remnant, that is, his own followers, would be turned to ectoplasm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a new one. <laughs> he wrote a 70,000-word tract, had it printed, and mailed it to world leaders. It's highly doubtful any of them read it. None replied, but he went ahead and hired the Pasadena Civic Auditorium and the Oddfellows Hall in which to hold meetings. Crowds filled both to hear Reverend Long and his son Richard preach the second coming. Hundreds repented and were baptized. Seven days before September 21st, the remnant uh, started around the clock fasting and prayer. A few thousand Californians cast anxious eyes to the heavens. At 5.33 p.m. on September 21st, the remnant shivered in anticipation, but nothing happened. The remnant dispersed, and Reverend Long was seen standing alone mumbling something about miscalculation. Amen. One more. Get Matthew 24. We'll stop at 1954. We covered the latter-day date setters earlier in the series. Matthew 24. Yes, sir. That's probably got a hold of some Marvel comics or something by that time. Ectoplasm. Ooh. All right, 1954 was the year of a doomsday doubleheader. In May 1954, large cracks developed in the 1,800-year-old Colosseum in Rome. All Romans to this day know the Sibylline uh, prediction that Rome will be safe as long as the Colosseum stands. But when the Colosseum falls, not only will Rome fall, but the world as we know it will come to an end. How many of you knew that? That's the closest thing to the Bible we've read tonight. Revelation 17, a great earthquake will destroy Rome in one hour and that'll be the end of the world and Jesus will come back and set up his kingdom. Well, anyway, on uh, May 24th, a big crack appeared in this, uh, or, or a big crack appeared in this thing in 54 and uh, somehow May 24th was set on the, as the day on which the Colosseum would crumble and Rome and the world would disappear. Terror gripped the ignorant Again, the churches were jammed with those seeking marriage, baptism, or absolution. Kissing in public, banned by an old statute, became widespread. Police were kept busy breaking up couples bent on a final round of carnal pleasure. Drunks were everywhere. A crowd, mostly women, stormed the Vatican, demanding an audience with the Pope. They were sternly rebuked by a Vatican spokesman who told them that the Pope would not see them. Busy checking his calendar, make sure he was ready to go. Nothing happened on May 24th, except the derailment of the Milan-Rome Express. Repairs were hastily begun on the Colosseum, and soon the hysteria died down. Second half of this doubleheader took place in Lansing, Michigan. Dr. Charles Loghead, a former medical missionary, was then on the staff of Michigan State University. 
He was a member of an informal discussion group which met at various faculty homes. On one occasion, this group entertained a medium who claimed to be in communication with entities from outer space. And you know something? The closer you get to the Lord's return, the closer you get to the truth of this matter. We went from just the earth burning up to Jesus showing up on the Mount of Olives and riding into Jerusalem on a horse to the Lord coming in the clouds in the east and catching up believers to 1954, you've got mediums contacting familiar spirits. Isn't that something? Well, anyway, uh, Dr. Langhead, or Loghead, became very intrigued with these entities from outer space. He began attending seances, taking curious groups of college students with him. Finally, one of these entities had a message for him. The cast of the country, the USA, is to break in twain. America's Atlantic seaboard will be submerged. France, England, and Russia will become one big sea. The messages from outer space continued. Dr. Loghead worked out the exact date of the cataclysm, December 21, 1954. Not all would perish. Some would be rescued by spacecraft cleansed, and then returned to repopulate what was left of the earth. Well, those unclean spirits know more about the Bible than just the good old lost folks, don't they? By this time, Dr. Loghead's connection with Michigan State University had been terminated. <laughs> Can't understand why. I mean, what with academic freedom and and a liberal education, why would you get rid of a guy with, with so much to offer? <laughs> I'd rather sat in his class than some of the professors I had at school. <laughs> As the final days approached, Dr. Loghead and his group spent all night with the medium waiting for further instructions from outer space. They came. Spaceships would pick up the party in the garden and back of the house at the last moment. Nobody wearing iron could enter a spaceship, however. Well, how about that? Frantically, they tore off buttons, shoe heels, buckles, and zippers. They threw away cigarette lighters and cases. <laughs> but having destroyed their clothes and property, the spaceships didn't show up. Nothing happened. When asked by the news media, Dr. Loghead said, at the last minute, God changed his mind. Matthew... Matthew 24. And they think we're nuts for carrying a Bible around. Matthew 24, verse 44. Therefore, be ye also ready. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Please, please, don't anybody say Jesus is coming tomorrow. I want him to come tomorrow. Okay? Be ready for his coming. Be living in anticipation. Get everything done you need to do before the Lord comes back. But he's not coming when you or anybody else thinks he's coming. He's coming when the church age is finished. Now the nearest thing you had to the real end of the world got no publicity at all. Took place October 30th, 1937. On that day, Hermes, a gigantic asteroid, 
missed, missed crashing into the earth by a half million miles. A half a million miles. <laughs> you know what that is at the speed those asteroids travel? Count it. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. It came within three seconds of colliding with planet Earth and ending human life as you know it. Isn't that something? There's a God Almighty in heaven, and all he's got to do is take one chunk of rock from one part of his solar system and aim it at this chunk of rock you're living on, and all he's got to do is move that thing over three seconds from the course it's traveling through space, and you're gone. And every living thing on this earth is gone. Now, you know what I'd do? I wouldn't worry about any prophet or any prophetess that set a date for the Lord's return. The Lord said he's coming. I'd believe him and I'd get ready because I don't know the day or the hour and it could be today. I'd be ready. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hey. Satan's dominion will then be yours. See